Chapter 4 of Uncanny Stories by May Sinclair This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rhiannon Damon The Nature of the Evidence This is the story Marston told me. He didn't want to tell it. I had to tear it from him bit by bit. I've pieced the bits together in their time order, and explained things here and there, but the facts are the facts he gave me. There's nothing that I didn't get out of him somehow. Out of him. You'll admit my source is unimpeachable. Edward Marston, the great K.C., and the author of an admirable work on The Logic of Evidence. You should have read the chapters on what evidence is and what it is not. You may say he lied, but if you knew Marston, you'd know he wouldn't lie, for the simple reason that he's incapable of inventing anything. So that, if you ask me whether I believe this tale, all I can say is, I believe the things happened because he said they happened, and because they happened to him. As for what they were, well, I don't pretend to explain it. Neither would he. You know he was married twice. He adored his first wife, Rosamond, and Rosamond adored him. I suppose they were completely happy. She was fifteen years younger than he, and beautiful. I wish I could make you see how beautiful. Her eyes and mouth had the same sort of bow, full and wide-sweeping and they stared out of her face with the same grave, contemplative innocence. Her mouth was finished off at each corner with the loveliest little molding, rounded like the pistil of a flower. She wore her hair in a solid gold fringe over her forehead, like a child's, and a big coil at the back. When it was let down, it hung in a heavy cable to her waist. Marston used to tease her about it, she had a trick of tossing back the rope in the night when it was hot under her, and it would fall smack across his face and hurt him. There was a pathos about her that I can't describe. A curious, pure, sweet beauty, like a child's. Perfect, and perfectly immature. So immature that you couldn't conceive its lasting, like that, any more than childhood lasts. Marston used to say it made him nervous. He was afraid of waking up in the morning and finding that it had changed in the night. And her beauty was so much a part of herself that you couldn't think of her without it. Somehow, you felt that if it went, she must go too. Well, she went first. For a year afterwards, Marston existed dangerously, always on the edge of a breakdown. If he didn't go over altogether, it was because his work saved him. He had no consoling theories. He was one of those bigoted materialists of the nineteenth-century type who believe that consciousness is a purely physiological function and that when your body's dead, you're dead. He saw no reason to suppose the contrary. When you consider, he used to say, the nature of the evidence. It's as well to bear this in mind so as to realize that he hadn't any bias or anticipation. Rosamond survived for him only in his memory. 
and in his memory he was still in love with her. At the same time, he used to discuss quite cynically the chances of his marrying again. It seems that in their honeymoon they had gone into that. Rosamond said she hated to think of his being lonely and miserable, supposing she died before he did. She would like him to marry again, if, she stipulated, he married the right woman. He had put it to her. And if I marry the wrong one? And she had said, that would be different. She couldn't bear that. He remembered all this afterwards, but there was nothing in it to make him suppose, at the time, that she would take action. We talked it over, he and I, one night. I suppose, he said, I shall have to marry again. It's a physical necessity, but it won't be anything more. I shan't marry the sort of woman who'll expect anything more. I won't put another woman in Rosamond's place. There'll be no unfaithfulness about it. And there wasn't. Soon after the first year, he married Pauline Silver. She was a daughter of old Justice Parker, who was a friend of Marston's people. He hadn't seen the girl till she came home from India after her divorce. Yes, there'd been a divorce. Silver had behaved very decently. He'd let her bring it against him to save her. But there were some queer stories going about. They didn't get round to Marston, because he was so mixed up with her people, and if they had, he wouldn't have believed them. He'd made up his mind he'd marry Pauline from the first minute he'd seen her. She was handsome, the hard, black, white, and vermilion kind, with a little aristocratic nose and a lascivious mouth. It was, as he had meant it to be, nothing but physical infatuation on both sides. No question of Pauline's taking Rosamond's place. Marston had a big case on at the time. They were in such a hurry that they couldn't wait till it was over. And as it kept him in London, they agreed to put off their honeymoon till the autumn, and he took her straight to his own house in Curzon Street. This, he admitted afterwards, was the part he hated. The Curzon Street house was associated with Rosamond, especially their bedroom, Rosamond's bedroom, and his library. The library was the room Rosamond liked best, because it was his room. She had her place in the corner by the hearth, and they were always alone there together in the evenings when his work was done. And when it wasn't done, she would still sit with him, keeping quiet in her corner with a book. Luckily for Marston, at the first sight of the library, Pauline took a dislike to it. I can hear her. Bah! There's something beastly about this room, Edward. I can't think how you can sit in it. And Edward, a little caustic. You needn't, if you don't like it. I certainly shan't. She stood there, I can see her, on the hearthrug by Rosamond's chair, looking uncommonly handsome and lascivious. He was going to take her in his arms and kiss her vermilion mouth when, he said, something stopped him, stopped him clean, as if it had risen up and stepped between them. He supposed it was the memory of Rosamond, vivid in the place that had been hers. 
You see, it was just that place, of silent, intimate communion, that Pauline would never take. And the rich, coarse, contented creature didn't even want to take it. He saw that he would be left alone there, all right, with his memory. But the bedroom was another matter. That Pauline had made it understood from the beginning she would have to have. Indeed, there was no other he could well have offered her. The drawing-room covered the whole of the first floor. The bedrooms above were cramped, and this one had been formed by throwing the two front rooms into one. It looked south, and the bathroom opened out of it at the back. Marston's small northern room had a door on the narrow landing at right angles to his wife's door. He could hardly expect her to sleep there, still less in any of the tight boxes on the top floor. He said he wished he had sold the Curzon Street house. But Pauline was enchanted with the wide, three-windowed piece that was to be hers. It had been exquisitely furnished for poor little Rosamond. All seventeenth-century walnut wood, Bokhara rugs, thick silk curtains, deep blue with purple linings, and a big, rich bed covered with a purple counterpane embroidered in blue. One thing Marston insisted on, that he should sleep on Rosamond's side of the bed and Pauline in his own old place. He didn't want to see Pauline's body where Rosamond's had been. Of course, he had to lie about it and pretend he had always slept on the side next the window. I can see Pauline going about in that room, looking at everything, looking at herself, her black, white, and vermilion, in the glass that had held Rosamond's pure rose and gold, opening the wardrobe where Rosamond's dresses used to hang, sniffing up the delicate flower scent of Rosamond, not caring, covering it with her own thick trail. And Marston, who cared abominably, I can see him getting more miserable and at the same time more excited as the wedding evening went on. He took her to the play to fill up the time, or perhaps to get her out of Rosamond's rooms. God knows I can see them sitting in the stalls, bored and restless, starting up and going out before the thing was half over, and coming back to that house in Curzon Street before eleven o'clock. It wasn't much past eleven when he went to her room. I told you her door was at right angles to his, and the landing was narrow, so that anybody standing by Pauline's door must have been seen the minute he opened his. He hadn't even to cross the landing to get to her. Well, Marston swears that there was nothing there when he opened his own door, but when he came to Pauline's, he saw Rosamond standing up before it, and he said, "'She wouldn't let me in.' Her arms were stretched out, barring the passage. Oh, yes, he saw her face, Rosamond's face. I gathered that it was utterly sweet and utterly inexorable. He couldn't pass her. So he turned into his own room, backing, he says, so that he could keep looking at her. And when he stood on the threshold of his own door, she wasn't there. No, he wasn't frightened. He couldn't tell me what he felt. 
but he left his door open all night because he couldn't bear to shut it on her and he made no other attempt to go in to pauline he was so convinced that the phantasm of rosamond would come again and stop him i don't know what sort of excuse he made to pauline the next morning he said she was very stiff and sulky all day and no wonder he was still infatuated with her and i don't think that the phantasm of rosamond had put him off pauline in the least in fact he persuaded himself that the thing was nothing but a hallucination due no doubt to his excitement anyhow he didn't expect to see it at the door again the next night yes it was there only this time he said it drew aside to let him pass it smiled at him as if it were saying go in if you must you'll see what'll happen he had no sense that it had followed him into the room he felt certain that this time it would let him be it was when he approached pauline's bed which had been rosamond's bed that she appeared again standing between it and him and stretching out her arms to keep him back all that pauline could see was her bridegroom backing and backing then standing there fixed and the look on his face that in itself was enough to frighten her she said what's the matter with you edward he didn't move what are you standing there for why don't you come to bed then marston seems to have lost his head and blurted it out i can't i can't can't what said pauline from the bed can't sleep with you she won't let me she rosamond my wife she's there what on earth are you talking about she's there i tell you she won't let me she's pushing me back he says pauline must have thought he was drunk or something remember she saw nothing but edward his face and his mysterious attitude he must have looked very drunk she sat up in bed with her hard black eyes blazing away at him and told him to leave the room that minute which he did you came to my room edward in a disgraceful state i suppose marston said he was sorry but he couldn't help it he wasn't drunk he stuck to it that rosamond was there he had seen her and pauline said if he wasn't drunk then he must be mad and he said meekly perhaps i am mad that set her off and she broke out in a fury he was no more mad than she was but he didn't care for her he was making ridiculous excuses shamming to put her off there was some other woman marston asked her what on earth she supposed he'd married her for then she burst out crying and said she didn't know then he seems to have made it up with pauline he managed to make her believe he wasn't lying that he really had seen something and between them they arrived at a rational explanation of the appearance he had been overworking rosamond's phantasm was nothing but a hallucination of his exhausted brain this theory carried him on till bedtime then he says he began to wonder what would happen 
what Rosamond's phantasm would do next. Each morning his passion for Pauline had come back again, increased by frustration, and it worked itself up crescendo towards night. Supposing he had seen Rosamond, he might see her again. He had become suddenly subject to hallucinations. But as long as you knew you were hallucinated, you were all right. So what they agreed to do that night was by way of precaution, in case the thing came again. It might even be sufficient in itself to prevent his seeing anything. Instead of going in to Pauline, he was to get into the room before she did, and she was to come to him there. That, they said, would break the spell. To make him feel even safer, he meant to be in bed before Pauline came. Well, he got into the room all right. It was when he tried to get into bed that he saw her. I mean Rosamond. She was lying there, in his place next the window, her own place, lying in her immature, childlike beauty and sleeping, the firm, full bow of her mouth softened by sleep. She was perfect in every detail, the lashes of her shut eyelids golden on her white cheeks, the solid gold of her square fringe shining, and the great braided golden rope of her hair flung back on the pillow. He knelt down by the bed and pressed his forehead into the bedclothes, close to her side. He declared he could feel her breathe. He stayed there for the twenty minutes Pauline took to undress and come to him. He says the minutes stretched out like hours. Pauline found him still kneeling with his face pressed into the bedclothes. When he got up, he staggered. She asked him what he was doing and why he wasn't in bed. And he said, It's no use. I can't. I can't. But somehow he couldn't tell her that Rosamond was there. Rosamond was too sacred. He couldn't talk about her. He only said, You'd better sleep in my room tonight. He was staring down at the place in the bed where he still saw Rosamond. Pauline couldn't have seen anything but the bedclothes. The sheet smoothed above an invisible breast, and the hollow in the pillow. She said she'd do nothing of the sort. She wasn't going to be frightened out of her own room. He could do as he liked. He couldn't leave them there. He couldn't leave Pauline with Rosamond, and he couldn't leave Rosamond with Pauline. So he sat up in a chair with his back turned to the bed. No, he didn't make any attempt to go back. He says he knew she was still lying there, guarding his place, which was her place. The odd thing is that he wasn't in the least disturbed or frightened or surprised. He took the whole thing as a matter of course, and presently he dozed off into a sleep. A scream woke him, and the sound of a violent body leaping out of the bed and thudding on to its feet. He switched on the light and saw the bedclothes flung back and Pauline standing on the floor with her mouth open. He went to her and held her. She was cold to the touch and shaking with terror, and her jaws dropped as if she was palsied. She said, "'Edward, there's something in the bed.' He glanced again at the bed. It was empty. "'There isn't,' he said. "'Look.' 
he stripped the bed to the footrail so that she could see. There was something. Do you see it? No, I felt it. She told him. First, something had come swinging, smack across her face. A thick, heavy rope of woman's hair. It had waked her. Then she had put out her hands and felt the body. A woman's body. Soft and horrible. Her fingers had sunk in the shallow breasts. Then she had screamed and jumped. And she couldn't stay in the room. The room, she said, was beastly. She slept in Marston's room, in his small single bed, and he sat up with her all night on a chair. She believed now that he really had seen something, and she remembered that the library was beastly too, haunted by something. She supposed that was what she had felt. Very well. Two rooms in the house were haunted, their bedroom and the library. They would just have to avoid those two rooms. She had made up her mind, you see, that it was nothing but a case of an ordinary haunted house. The sort of thing you're always hearing about, and never believe in till it happens to yourself. Marston didn't like to point out to her that the house hadn't been haunted till she came into it. The following night, the fourth night, she was to sleep in the spare room on the top floor, next to the servants, and Marston in his own room. But Marston didn't sleep. He kept on wondering whether he would or would not go up to Pauline's room. That made him horribly restless, and instead of undressing and going to bed, he sat up on a chair with a book. He wasn't nervous, but he had a queer feeling that something was going to happen, and that he must be ready for it, and that he'd better be dressed. It must have been soon after midnight when he heard the doorknob turning very slowly and softly. The door opened behind him, and Pauline came in, moving without a sound, and stood before him. It gave him a shock, for he had been thinking of Rosamond, and when he heard the doorknob turn, it was the phantasm of Rosamond that he expected to see coming in. He says, for the first minute, it was this appearance of Pauline— that struck him as the uncanny and unnatural thing. She had nothing, absolutely nothing on but a transparent white chiffony sort of dressing gown. She was trying to undo it. He could see her hands shaking as her fingers fumbled with the fastenings. He got up suddenly, and they just stood there before each other, saying nothing, staring at each other. He was fascinated by her, by the sheer glamour of her body, gleaming white through the thin stuff, and by the movement of her fingers. I think I've said she was a beautiful woman, and her beauty at that moment was overpowering. And still he stared at her without saying anything. It sounds as if their silence lasted quite a long time, but in reality it couldn't have been more than some fraction of a second. Then she began, "'Oh, Edward, for God's sake, say something! Oughtn't I to have come?' And she went on without waiting for an answer. Are you thinking of her? Because if... if you are, I'm not going to let her drive you away from me. I'm not going to... She'll keep on coming as long as we don't... Can't you see that this is the way to stop it? When you take me in your arms... She slipped off the loose sleeves of the chiffon thing, and it fell to her feet. 
Marston says he heard a queer sound, something between a groan and a grunt, and was amazed to find that it came from himself. He hadn't touched her yet. Mind you, it went quicker than it takes to tell. It was still an affair of the fraction of second. They were holding out their arms to each other, when the door opened again without a sound, and without visible passage. The phantasm was there. It came incredibly fast, and thin at first, like a shaft of light sliding between them. It didn't do anything. There was no beating of hands. Only, as it took on its full form, its perfect likeness of flesh and blood, it made its presence felt like a push, a force driving them asunder. Pauline hadn't seen it yet. She thought it was Marston who was beating her back. She cried out, "'Oh, don't, don't push me away!' She stooped below the phantasm's guard and clung to his knees, writhing and crying. For a moment it was a struggle between her moving flesh and that still supernatural being. And in that moment Marston realized that he hated Pauline. She was fighting Rosamond with her gross flesh and blood, taking a mean advantage of her embodied state to beat down the heavenly, discarnate thing. He called to her to let go. "'It's not I,' he shouted. "'Can't you see her?' Then, suddenly, she saw and let go and dropped, crouching on the floor and trying to cover herself. This time she had given no cry. The phantasm gave way. It moved slowly towards the door, and as it went it looked back over its shoulder at Marston. It trailed a hand, signaling to him to come. He went out after it, hardly aware of Pauline's naked body that still writhed there, clutching at his feet as they passed, and drew itself after him, like a worm, like a beast, along the floor. She must have got up at once and followed them out on to the landing, for, as he went down the stairs behind the phantasm, he could see Pauline's face, distorted with lust and terror, peering at them above the stairhead. She saw them descend the last flight, and cross the hall at the bottom, and go into the library. The door shut behind them. Something happened in there. Marston never told me precisely what it was, and I didn't ask him. Anyhow, that finished it. The next day Pauline ran away to her own people. She couldn't stay in Marston's house because it was haunted by Rosamond, and he wouldn't leave it for the same reason. And she never came back, for she was not only afraid of Rosamond, she was afraid of Marston. And if she had come, it wouldn't have been any good. Marston was convinced that— as often as he attempted to get to Pauline, something would stop him. Pauline certainly felt that, if Rosamond were pushed to it, she might show herself in some still more sinister and terrifying form. She knew when she was beaten. And there was more in it than that. I believe he tried to explain it to her, said he had married her on the assumption that Rosamond was dead but that now he knew she was alive. She was, as he put it, there. He tried to make her see that, 
if he had Rosamond, he couldn't have her. Rosamond's presence in the world annulled their contract. You see, I'm convinced that something did happen that night in the library. I say he never told me precisely what it was. But he once let something out. We were discussing one of Pauline's love affairs. After the separation, she gave him endless grounds for divorce. Poor Pauline, he said. She thinks she's so passionate. Well, I said, wasn't she? Then he burst out. No. She doesn't know what passion is. None of you know. You haven't the faintest conception. You'd have to get rid of your bodies first. I didn't know until— He stopped himself. I think he was going to say, until Rosamond came back and showed me. For he leaned forward and whispered, It isn't a localized affair at all. If you only knew. So I don't think it was just faithfulness to a revived memory. I take it there had been, behind that shut door, some experience, some terrible and exquisite contact, more penetrating than sight or touch, more, more extensive, passion at all points of being, perhaps the supreme moment of it, the ecstasy, only came when her phantasm had disappeared. He couldn't go back to Pauline after that. End of chapter 4